0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 242, Edward Atheling at Farnham. Have you heard about Blue Apron? So have I. And because the show is ad-free, due to member support, you don't have to hear about overpriced grocery boxes just to learn about history. And to thank members for helping keep the show independent and grocery-free, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for less than a quarter of one box of Blue Apron per month, and you won't even have to take anything out of the plastic. And thank you very much to Andy, Nicholas, and Robert for signing up already. 892 wasn't a very good year. Alfred's gambit to pacify the forces of Haston through the power of baptism and gifts had failed utterly. And now, those Vikings were encamped at Benfleet, Essex, and they were launching raids into Wessex and probably Mercia. And as for the gargantuan fleet of 250 ships that were stationed at the south at Appledore, well, it was still there. And as for allies, Wessex had few. Mercia and most of Wales owed them fealty, but the Franks were unlikely to give them any assistance. I mean, these Danes had arrived in Frankish ships. And if that's not a hint, I don't know what is. And as for the East Anglians and Northumbrians, well, all Alfred could hope for was that they would stay out of it. But even that hope was slim at best. All Wessex had now was its army and its network of burrs. But would that be enough? For the West Saxons, every move at this point would be critical. And granted it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That's life. But Wessex was in such a bind that their only chance of victory was to do absolutely everything right. So the first thing that needed to be handled was getting Alfred and the Ferd in the best possible position. After all, given the nature of conflict during this period and the design of his defenses, Alfred's positioning very well could be the turning point in this fight he and his forces needed to be centrally placed. They needed to be somewhere that would allow him to send word quickly and react to any incursions with speed. But he also needed to be somewhere that would allow him an easy route of escape, should there be another sneak attack like there was at Chippenham. So, in the words of the Chronicle, quote, King Alfred gathered his army and advanced, so that he encamped between the two armies at the highest point he could find, defended by wood and water, that he might reach either if they would seek any field. End quote. Alfred was digging in at a location that sounds like it was probably picked in the model of Athelney. Now, unfortunately, the Chronicle doesn't tell us where this base of operations actually was. But given the Chronicle's strategy notes and the situation that Alfred was in, There are theories regarding where he might have been, and many scholars believe that the fort at Maidstone was the likely location. It had access to fresh water, it was close to the burrs at Hastings and Rochester, which would allow for quick reinforcements. It was also on the River Medway, and it was positioned on the north-south Roman road that ran through the Weld, as well as the ancient east-west trail that went along the Downs. Maidstone gave Alfred the tactical advantage that he needed. And while we'll probably never truly know where he was encamped, Maidstone would have been an excellent choice. But even if he wasn't at Maidstone, Alfred was probably still somewhere in the area because that would allow him to do what he most needed to do. It would allow him to try and contain the fleet to the south. The big one. I mean, that was the more pressing threat. Hastin was certainly a problem, and by breaking his sacred religious vow, he'd insulted Alfred and God. But, regardless of any vengeful impulses that might have been circulating in Alfred's court, the fact remained that Hastin was commanding a far smaller force, and he was in a position where the forces of Athelred of Mercia would have had an easier time reaching him than Alfred's Ferd. The mounted army and its accompanying naval fleet at Appledore, on the other hand, Well, that could lay waste to large portions of Wessex if it was left unopposed. So Alfred needed to keep his forces close enough to Appledore to contain them. And he also needed to position them in such a way that it would ensure that the two armies remained separate. Many years earlier, at Reading, Alfred had used mounted patrols to devastating effect against the great army of Halfdan. And later on, he used hit-and-run tactics to harry and disrupt the forces of Guthrum. And both times, Alfred had only a small number of soldiers under his command. And now he had a full army. And those tactics were still valid, and they could be carried out by units all throughout the region. He could turn the weald into a quagmire. And because he had reorganized the Ferd, he had the forces necessary to do exactly that. And that was a good thing, because the Danes at Appledore weren't wasting any time. The chronicle tells us that, quote, they went forth in quest of the Wales, in troops and companies, wherever the country was defenseless. End quote. So the Danes were engaging in classic raiding tactics. They were looting the surrounding settlements in groups of varying sizes, sometimes in large companies, sometimes in small bands. But, the chronicle continues. Quote, but they were also sought after most days by other companies, either by day or by night, both from the army and also from the towns, end quote. So Alfred had activated his army and stationed them in the south. And that much was to be expected. But that's not the only thing we're learning here. The fyrd wasn't the only group that was hunting the Viking raiding parties. The people of the towns were also sending forth their own forces. And these missions were being carried out day and night. At Athelney, the West Saxons had learned that even a small unit of regulars, if it uses the right tactics, can impede and damage a far superior force. They had also learned the important lesson of guerrilla warfare, that it can be carried out by anyone, not just by the warrior elite. And given the fact that the Chronicle is telling us of even the people of the towns carrying out attacks and the fact that they were doing this day and night, well, it sounds like the West Saxons were using those tactics once again to their full advantage. The Chronicle also adds that, quote, the king had divided his army in two parts so that they were always half at home, half out, besides the men that should maintain the towns, end quote. So, in addition to the changes in tactics, we're also hearing about how the reform of the Ferd has been completed And, as we've talked about in an earlier episode, Wessex now had a standing army that operated in shifts, with one half on shift and the other half back at home. But also, each town had its own people defending them as well. That's an enormous break from how things have been just 50 years earlier. Alfred's defense of Wessex was now in full effect. But something important to know is that it wasn't just Alfred out there leading and fighting. It probably feels that way, especially if you're reading the contemporary sources. To hear the scribes tell it, if there's a victory, Alfred was behind it. If there's a smart choice, Alfred was the one who made it. Reading the Chronicle from this period, you'd be forgiven if you had the impression that the only man in Wessex who could swing a sword was Alfred. But that's silly when you think about it. Alfred has always relied heavily on his supporters. It's just that they're hard to see sometimes, but if you look at the record close enough, you can find them. Remember Athelnoth? It's doubtful that Alfred would have survived Athelney without the support of Athelnoth of Somerset. So the idea that now that Alfred was leading a multi-kingdom force, that he wouldn't rely on other commanders in the field, well, that's ridiculous. The more likely situation is that they were there but the scribes didn't feel like telling us about them. But thankfully, there's another chronicle that was written in the late 900s, so almost a century after these events. And that chronicle didn't have the same compulsion to give Alfred credit for everything. It was written by Elderman Athelweird, a distant relative of Alfred's. And what Athelweird tells us is critical for our understanding. Specifically, He tells us about the pivotal role that Alfred's son, and heir to the kingdom, Edward Atheling, was playing in this fight. Now at the time of this war, Edward was about the same age that his father was when he fought at Ashdown. So this certainly was a good time for the Atheling to earn his spurs and prove that he was worthy of being heir to Wessex. And besides, Alfred was in his 40s and he wasn't getting any healthier. So frankly, it would be bizarre if Alfred was in the field and Edward wasn't. And as you might have guessed, Athelweird has a different take on this fight. He tells us that Edward was the one out there, and he was commanding a sizable portion of the fyrd in the wild, if not all of it. And why shouldn't he? Alfred likely had numerous, for lack of a better term, generals in the field. And there's a good chance that his son was just one of them this was a titanic struggle so every resource would have had to be employed in an effort to win so chances are there were a lot more people out there fighting than what we hear about and even though they don't get the credit they deserve the defenses were working the strategies that were being employed in the field the irregular units from the towns the strikes by the furred the patrols all of it was working but let me be clear I don't want to underplay the danger that these danes posed this was a shockingly large and experienced mounted army of vikings they had run into some bad luck recently but they were the same group that had seized and sacked numerous well-known cities on the continent they knew what they were doing furthermore i don't want to underplay how successful the danes could be in the field the forces of wessex had an incredibly large swath of territory to defend And no matter how well they patrolled, somewhere would always be left unprotected. And that problem was compounded by the size of the Danish forces and the fact that they were mounted. So the Danes were still able to successfully carry out raids. Make no mistake about it, this campaign was making them all quite rich. But the fact that Wessex was able to provide any sort of resistance against this particular army is remarkable. Whenever raiding parties were sent out from Appledore, they couldn't be sure whether or not they were walking into an ambush. And given how dense these woods were, they likely wouldn't know until it was too late. This was an unexpectedly staunch resistance. And it was made possible in large part because of a broad cultural change that was occurring in Wessex. True, there were a lot of burrs that were constructed, But with the reorganization of the Ferd and the activation of town-based patrols, we're seeing that the West Saxons were breaking from tradition. Warfare was no longer simply a noble pursuit that was carried out by war bands, with the occasional farmer brought in to fill in the gaps. Now this was a regional conflict. Everyone was getting involved. Everyone had a task to carry out in service to the community. It was a titanic shift in social organization and likely big cultural understandings were starting to shift with it. And in the autumn and winter of 892, Wessex had the first test of its new war footing and it was all working. All of Alfred's plans, all of his reforms, they were holding back one of the fiercest armies known to Europe during this period. And on Easter of 893, As winter was turning to spring, there was finally some good news. Scouts reported that the camp at Appledore were readying their ships and loading their ill-gotten booty on board. It had been a hard six months. The fighting had been fierce, and there had been widespread looting despite their best efforts. But finally, it was over. The Danes were leaving. Wessex had weathered the storm. Then came a second group of scouts. The ships had finally set sail. But only with a skeleton crew on board. The remainder of the army remained behind. Before Wessex could react, before they could rouse their forces from their religious celebrations, the Danes had already moved into the Weld. Once again, their own holy days were being used against them by the pagans. And this time they were using Wessex's own landscape against them as well. The woods were dense and difficult to move through. Even though the Viking army was large, these woods were larger, and finding them immediately proved to be incredibly difficult. Even though the West Saxon defenses were well positioned, these pirates had managed to slip right past Edward's furred without him being any the wiser. All of Wessex had been taken by surprise. Alfred, who should have known better, had been taken by surprise. And as a result, after holding the Viking horde back for months, the kingdom was once again caught flat-footed. And the Danes knew exactly what they were doing. Their scouts had spent their time in Appledore well, and the army quickly was moving along the ancient prehistoric track that runs through the weld and cuts deep into Wessex they had a straight shot right into the rich and largely unsuspecting lands that made up the heartland of Alfred's kingdom. And don't forget the single most important thing that we learned about this army when it left Boulogne. They brought their horses with them. It was a mounted army. So even if Edward and Alfred's scouts found the tracks and recognized where this army was headed, catching up with them would be difficult, if not impossible. Meanwhile, At sea, the fleet of 250 ships were making their way north, around the coast of Essex, and finally to the island of Mercy, East Anglian territory. Whatever these Danes had in mind, they now appear to have had East Anglian support. The hostages that King Eric provided and the oaths that he made apparently didn't work but at least Alfred now had a sense of what he had to deal with from this new king of East Anglia. He now knew that Eric was less like recent Guthrum and more like a return of old Guthrum. All the more reason to educate these pagans in the power of God and of Wessex, as he had done in decades past. But the bad news wasn't done yet. As insult to injury, the Danes of Appledore weren't simply content with relocating to East Anglia, presumably to join with Hastin and the East Anglian forces. No, first, they wanted to loot Wessex. We've had some pretty bad easters in British history, but this has to rank in the top three so far. Everything was going wrong all at once, and this mounted army of Danes was moving quickly. Though not in a straight line. It appears that their initial plan was for the army to loot its way back to East Anglia. But the prospect of plunder got the better of them. And soon, the main guiding principle for this army was that they would go wherever there was a target ripe for plunder. Rather than moving efficiently to their ultimate goal, the Danes ravaged their way as far west as Hampshire and only made it as far north as Berkshire there were simply too many good targets to ignore. But the Danes weren't the only people with horses. Furthermore, the burrs weren't just military strongpoints. They were also effective rallying spots and messaging centers. Each burr was about a day's ride from at least one other burr. And that made coordination across vast distances a possibility. And with every strike messengers were able to relay back to command the location and size of the Viking army. So far, all they were able to do was keep track of the army. Even though the Ferd under Edward's command likely had caught the scent and was trailing them, the Danes were simply too mobile to catch. But greed was getting the better of them. Every time they took a detour to strike a target of opportunity, they were slowed down. And this was an enormous army. So it's not that these detours weren't successful. They were. But the Danes were becoming victims of their own success because all of their stolen goods and all of those slaves that they were capturing were also slowing them down. Furthermore, with an army of that size and with that much plunder being located that far into enemy territory, well, that came with its own problems as well. After all, they couldn't just camp out in the open. They were being tracked by a large furred. And all throughout the countryside were forts being held by bands of fighters that were only too willing to engage in guerrilla tactics. So whenever they stopped, they needed to find a way to make their camp safe. Which meant that if they weren't occupying a fort, they would need to construct some form of makeshift defenses. And that also slowed them down. And all of this was giving the West Saxons time to catch up, time to move troops into flanking positions, time to lay a trap. And as the army moved into Surrey, the tide began to turn. The careful tracking of the Danish movements and the network of messengers was paying off. And as the Vikings encamped at Farnham, about 140 kilometers from their old fort at Appledore, word was sent out to the surrounding area. Now, the Danes hastily constructed defenses to protect their encampment, but I doubt they realized what was coming their way. The local forces probably were keeping their heads down, just watching and waiting. Then the forces from the burrs of Surrey joined them. And then the forces from the burrs of Hampshire arrived as well. The West Saxon patrols were coming in from virtually all directions now. The Danes were outflanked. And the bulk of the army under the command of Edward was rushing to join the growing army at Farnham. And at that point, the Danes might have realized how dire their situation had become. Because here's what happened next. Before Edward and the Ferd could reach Farnham, the combined forces of Hampshire and Surrey surged forward and attacked the makeshift Viking defenses. They were almost certainly outnumbered, less experienced than the Danes, and they were at a disadvantage because they were attacking a fortified position. And as you might imagine, the battle started to turn against them rather quickly. So why did they do it? Why attack before the bulk of the army could arrive? We don't know. But one thing that leaps to mind was that this was a highly mobile army that had evaded a battle countless times in the past. And the West Saxons were finally in a position to bring the fight to them. And Edward Atheling was on his way. So if the Danes looked like they were about to make a run for it, one possible reason for this charge was to buy the Atheling and his forces the time that they needed to arrive. And provided that their shield walls held, the local forces might be able to get him that time with only minimal losses. But this was worse than expected. The fighting was difficult. And were told that the battle was turning against the West Saxons. Whoever these brave people were, their bravery was costing them their lives. And it was happening fast. If this went on too long, their sacrifice would be for nothing. Then suddenly Edward and his fyrd arrived. And what rushed towards the battle at Farnham was a sizable, well trained, and eager army. Despite the looting and losses, the Burrs were doing their job. In decades past, a mobile force like this would have been nigh impossible to counter. But thanks to the network of fortified settlements, Edward's Edwardsford was able to move from Burr to Burr, stay reasonably fresh, and stay resupplied. And that meant that unlike the Danes they were advancing upon, the West Saxon forces weren't exhausted from the hard living that can come from a campaign in the field. They were fresh, they were supported by local forces, and they were led by a man who seems to have inherited his father's fierce temperament in battle. And once they got in range, the order was given, and the royal furred closed ranks, raised their shields, formed a sequence of dense shield walls, and advanced upon the Danes. As described by Athelweird, the local forces, upon seeing this, quote, leaped against the prepared defenses. They duly exulted, being set free from care by the prince's arrival, like sheep brought to the pastures by the help of the shepherd after the usual onslaught of predators, end quote. And granted, Athelweird's prose leaves much to be desired, but given what we know about the tactics and strategy of these forces, what he has to say about what happened here sounds about right to me. Edward's shield walls likely formed the dense center of the battle, and that left the local forces, many of which were likely irregular forces, free to assault the defenses and attack the Danes on the flank. The Vikings were trapped, and after burning and ravaging their way through Hampshire, Berkshire, and Surrey, it was unlikely that any surrender would be accepted. So they dug in and kept fighting. That is, until their king was struck down in the melee. We aren't told this Viking king's name. That appears to have been lost to history. But when he fell, the morale of the invading army fell with him. And what remained of their forces fled from the battlefield however they could. They left behind their wounded, their loot, everything. The once great army of Appledore had been broken utterly, and the West Saxons were relentlessly pursuing them all along the river way. So panic-stricken was their flight that when they spotted an island that was carved out by the River Thames near Iver in Buckinghamshire, they didn't even bother to find a ford. They dove into the water and hoped for the best as they swam for the island of Thorny. The record doesn't tell us how many of their forces drowned. But swimming in full clothing, let alone armor, can be incredibly dangerous. And of those that made it, what happened to their weapons? Did they drop those too? It isn't clear, but we're told that the Danes who survived the retreat simply huddled on the island. They had little, if any, food. They were drenched, exhausted, and had little, if any, weaponry. This island wasn't a refuge. It was a trap. Now, it was only a question of whether they would die of hunger, or whether they would be killed by the West Saxons when they eventually stormed the island. The gods had abandoned them. But across the river, Edward had problems of his own. In his haste to capture the Danes, he and his fyrd had failed to bring their provisions with them. And a hungry army is an unhappy army. That issue was compounded by the fact that his Ferd was only his for the duration of their term of service. Once that period was finished, they were relieved and could return home. And that term was expiring. Word was sent to King Alfred of the impending disintegration of the Ferd, and the king readied his freshly raised forces. But the fact that Alfred was able to raise a relief force made one thing abundantly clear. Edwards Ferd had completed their duty, and no amount of pleading would make them change their minds. They had risked their lives for their prince. They had fought one of the most terrifying forces that Europe could produce. In the fighting, they had lost friends, neighbors, and even family members. It was brutal. But they won. However, they weren't professional warriors. They weren't being paid for this. They were here because if they weren't here, they would probably find themselves severely punished, exiled, or worse. They were here because they were required by their lords to be here. This military service was compulsory, or at least it was. That oath had been fulfilled, and they were needed back home. They had families who were waiting for them. They had crops that needed to be tended. They had lives to live. They wanted to go home. And while using the concepts of oaths and fealty had allowed the nobility to create a relatively cheap standing army, it came with a weakness that was becoming painfully obvious. Once that oath expired, there was little that the nobility could do to make the fird stay any longer. So the farmers turned warriors packed their things up. They were going back to their lives. All of this suffering and fear, all of this death, well, now it was someone else's problem. They were going home. And that's the story of how Edward Atheling found himself besieging an island of Vikings with no more than a handful of personal followers, and maybe a horse or two. Working. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and you can find links to all our other communities by looking in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.